You know, when, Fag- when Sarah Ferguson married Prince Andrew in July of 1986, uh, at a great royal wedding, there was a little clip that got played uh, in the newsreels over and over again after the wedding. And it, people thought that that was like a, a moment that was caught uh, on, on, on camera. And it got played over and over again. And it was not the clip of the carriage coming up uh, to Westminster Abbey or the processional with the forever long train of the wedding gown of, uh, of the royal weddings and all that. It was a moment when uh, Sarah said the wedding vows. All right? And she was supposed to say, I promise to love, honor, and obey. As she repeated the words after the after the the pastor, the priest. But when she got to the words obey, I mean, she gave a kind of a funny smile. You know, it's like, well, obey, you know, that kind of thing. Which was caught on camera, all right? By, and, and she probably meant like, you know, well, okay, I'll just say those words, but I, I don't quite believe it. I mean, why are we saying these things out of tradition? Nobody practices these kind of things anymore. You see, when, when we say or when we hear the words love, honor, and obey, and, some, and we do at, at weddings and, and, when, and, and we talk about submission, I mean, you don't have to look at a royal wedding, you know, but just think about your friends, think about uh, uh, maybe people close to you. How many don't want those kind of words in their wedding vows anymore? You know, it's like, you know, that, that's, our, our culture, especially among the young, seem to scorn the idea of submission. It's like, it's very old-fashioned. You know, uh, this thing called submission. Now, as a result of that, uh, if you are a Christian wife, uh, and Christian wives are often torn in tension when it comes to their role in the marriage. They don't know what it really means to submit. They don't know if submitting is even the right thing to do anymore. So, what is a Christian wife supposed to do? What is she supposed, when is she supposed to submit if even she, she, she does that? And to what extent is she supposed to submit? Draw the line. The plain answer of scripture is that a Christian wife is to submit. The Bible clearly says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. However, just shouting that to a woman or or just shoveling it down her throat is not going to cut it. I mean, if you are a husband and you go to your wife and say, the Bible says you are supposed to submit to me, you know, and you just throw the Bible at her, that's not going to cut it. See, the complexities of our age and time require us, therefore, people, to examine Scripture like the one that we have been looking at, Ephesians chapter 5, extremely carefully to make sure that our answers to this question of our wife's submission are not derived just from our own personal opinion or from the kind of background that we come from or even our culture. And I hope to help us to see that from Scripture or what the Bible that says when it talks about a wife's submission, we're going to look at this way, all right? Oh, that's off. Yeah. We're going to look at it this way uh, in three ways. Number one, the wife's duty. Number two, the, wa- the wife's dignity. And number three, the wife's desire. All right? 
Now, first of all, let's look at the wife's duty. Alright, the text is very clear. The duty of the Christian wife is to submit to the headship of her husband. Allow me to give you the context of this because you understand this better and appreciate this better when you know the context. The context is in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's what you know, uh, 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 Paul says, uh, everyone submit to one another. And then the tone quickly changes to the wives. and says, wives, you submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And there's a sudden shift from submitting to everybody to the wife being single out right now to submit to the husband. And why this sudden shift? Doesn't it look like an unfair shift, right? But to really understand this, you've got to go back to verse 18. That's the reason why when you study scripture, you've got to study it in its context. Otherwise, you can misinterpret it. So if you go up to verse 18, verse 18 actually sets the theme for what Paul was going to say in the verses to, uh, to come. So in verse 18, very familiar verse, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul is basically saying that a Christian is to be characterized by the things of the Spirit, not just be overwhelmed by the things of the world, like, you know, like uh, filled with wine. That's not what you're supposed to do. So don't let wine control you, he says. Instead, be controlled by the things of the Spirit. And then he goes ahead to define what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there are four things that will show. Number one, you would be able to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is verse 19. You will be singing, making melody in your heart, which is worship, verse 19. You will be giving thanks. You'll be filled with gratitude, verse 20. And then in verse 21, you will be submitting to one another. Then following this, Paul identifies three groups of people in the next verses. There are three pairs in the submission process. All right? The first pair is husband and wife. The second pair is children and fathers. The third pair is slaves and masters. So, does the phrase in verse 21, submit to one another, mean everybody submit to everybody? Is that what it means? Actually, not quite. That's not what it means. If you look at the context, is Paul saying that everyone submit to everyone or does submission mean that you properly submit to the relationship that you're in? He means the relationship that you're in. If you look at the examples, it's obvious. Obviously, fathers do not submit to their children. Masters do not submit to their slaves. Paul never said that. So there is never a removal of authority in the submission process, but there is a reorientation of authority for the good of others. So fathers are given authority, but they are to use their authority for the good of their children. So Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger, because that is abusing your authority. It's not using it for the good of your children. And then he says, masters, you, you don't submit to the slaves, you know, but you know, the, the, the slaves submit to you, but you treat the slaves with honor. When you treat the slaves with honor, you are using your authority for the good of the slaves. So then, when, when you look at these verses, whether it is husband-wife pair, or father-children pair, or master-slave pair, the undergirding virtue in this, is, in this submission relationship is one thing. Again, it is sacrifice. That those who have authority will use their authority not selfishly, but sacrificially, not abdicating that authority, but using that authority for the good and the flourishing of the other. So you have the authorities. Who are the authorities? The father. 
the husband, the boss. And who is to benefit from it? The other person. You abdicate your authority, you damage the other person. If the parent were to say to the child, you know what, I won't exercise authority over you. Do whatever you want. You know, I won't say a thing as your father. You are free to do what you want, son. It's all good for you, just do it. It will quickly damage the kids and it will damage the family. But to use the same authority selfishly will also damage you. We say, son, I am of authority. I'm just going to be hard on you. You provoke the child. And that will also damage the child. So Paul says, use your authority, but use it sacrificially for the good of the other. So from the context, you know that it is the wife's duty to submit to her husband, even as it is the duty of children to submit to their parents and of slaves or employees to submit to their bosses. Now with that, let me give you a biblical definition of submission. Submission biblically means to arrange one's gifts for the good of the other. Okay, just keep that in mind. The Greek word for submission is this word, hupotasso. And hupotasso means to arrange under. Now I'll explain that in just a little while. The way that the world thinks of a wife's submission is that she leaves her brain at the door of the church as she walks up the aisles to say her wedding vows and then go into marriage. Like from now on, I cannot use my brain. I cannot use my gifts, my talents. It's all gone. I'm submitted to this man. You know? That's the way the world sees. That is why we are afraid of the word submission. Submission means what? Submission means what? I, you know, I leave my brain you know, at the door of the church and walk in and say, I do to this man. Is that what it means? But the Bible's way of thinking of this is different. All that, what the Bible says is this, is that all that God has given to me as a wife, I am to express them. My intelligence, my skills, my abilities, my talents, my gifts, I am to bring all of this into the marriage and and as a husband is to use his authority for the good of another, all these gifts that God has given to me, I bring into the marriage, not to suppress them, but to express them for the good of my husband, and to express them for the good of my family, and for the good of my community. It is my duty and honor as a wife to do that. And therefore, looking at Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So what does it mean? Again, following this morning's pattern, like headship, submission does not mean nothing. You cannot ignore it. You cannot trivialize God's desire for wives to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.24 says this, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Paul says this is serious. Of all the things that he could tell the wife to do in a marriage, he says just one thing, submit. And he says you are to submit as to the Lord. And the example he gives is the way the church submits to Christ. And the scope of that submission is in everything. So it's not just in certain things, but in everything. You bring all that you have been graced with as a woman, all your giftedness to serve the good of your husband and to serve the good of your family. That is the wife's most beautiful highest calling and duty. So Paul 
is very serious about this. He's so serious that he does not only mention this in the book of Ephesians. He actually mentions this thing about wives submitting to their husband in five of his books. 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus. And not only Paul, Peter also mentioned the same thing in his book. So if you think that it's just in the New Testament, oh no, it's also mentioned in the Old Testament. God is serious about this call for wives to submit. It is their duty. And when Peter talks about it, he takes it all the way to Abraham. He says that, look, even Sarah submitted to her husband. That means she brought her gifts. She brought her grace. She brought her beauty. She brought everything to serve the good of her husband and the good of her family and eventually the good of her community and her nation and her descendants. But then Paul takes the relationship between husband and wife and he goes all the way back to Adam. So when the apostles are, are doing, what the apostles are doing here is not specific to a culture. They are saying that this is not just applicable to one age. It's applicable to every age, to every culture, to every city, to, every, to all time. It is for all time and it's for all people. It's, uh, this is that serious. So submission, therefore, people, has to mean something. It's a wife's call and duty to explore ways to utilize the gifts that God has given to her for the good of her husband and her family. Now that is submission, the wife's duty. But you cannot look at duty without also understanding dignity. That's where the balance comes in. So what is a wife's dignity? Now because we live in a world that... that feels like women should have equal rights. I mean, we hear that all the time. That women should have equal rights as a man. So even the very thought that a wife is to utilize her gifts to support her husband can sound like she is second to him. I mean, why should I use my gifts are my gifts? I can use it for anything. Why should I just use it for him? That's the thinking. Like as though I only exist for my husband. You get that, that, that feel? Like... You know, so that's feminism. Feminism says that once you make a woman subservient to a, to a man, you devalue them. You actually rob the dignity that God gives to them. And because we live in an age of feminism, of spousal abuse, of two-income households, of equal opportunity laws and, and gender-neutral political playing fields, it's really hard to accept what the scripture says, that the wife's duty is to submit to give herself for the good of her husband. Now someone say that, that's what I tell my dog to do, submit. I mean, and that's true. When you are a dog on owner, you give your dog a command, like belly up. You come back to the house and the dog is just doing his own thing. And they say, Charlie, belly up. And the dog hum, goes up like this. He stops everything that he's doing. His instincts, how he feels at that moment, his excitement, maybe he needed to go to the toilet, but no, my master is here, up. You know, so he bellies up and he does what you say. And that's the reaction of our culture to the word submit. It sounds demeaning. Listen, it is of course demeaning if the husband suppresses the wife's giftings. If the husband were to tell her that, you know what, I'm the husband, I'm the head, you submit to me. You cannot go out and work. And he says it's because of insecurity. That you've got to stay home. Or, you know what? 
I'll just give you so much money to spend. You do not have access to the ATM card. What? You know, and I'll give you, you know, 500 rupees a day. You spend that. Now that's oppression. You only teach the kids what I tell you to teach. That puts a cap on her gifts, on her talents, on her potentials. As a wife, she's not able to use her gifts for anyone's good. And that's not biblical submission, people. That's oppression. That's demeaning the wife. That's robbing her of her glory. And the, and the wife is then, if that is the case, the wife is actually free not to submit. And Paul says that the wife is to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ. And the church submission to Christ never includes participation in evil. When a husband makes unholy or ungodly demands on his wife, she is free not to submit. A husband has no right to require of his wife to do that which is contrary to the will of God and to what the scripture says. And she has no obligation to obey what forces her or him or their family to go against God's will. So, in that sense, submission never requires a wife to sin. She is to submit to her husband only as she would submit to God. The requirement to submit to one's husband never takes precedence over the requirement to submit to God. Therefore, people, a wife's dignity is never to be compromised in her duty to submit. Now, in case you think, why are only wives single out for submission in the Bible? I mean, why does the Bible just say this? I mean, just wives submit. People, that's not true. It's not just wives submit. The Bible, in the Bible, the requirement for submission was, it's not limited to just wives and to women. There are various other places where the word submission appears. For example, the word submission is used in relation to the church and Jesus. The church does not honor Christ by suppressing the gifts that God has provided the church. Rather, God calls the church to arrange all of her energies, all of her abilities, under the grand purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ. To do any less would not be submission. It would be disobedience. For instance, the gift of music that we heard this morning, the gift of the arts that God has given to His people, the church, are not to be suppressed, but they're supposed to be fully expressed in praising Him. You know, we come together as a people of God and God takes our potentials, takes the gifts that we have and, he, and, he, and, and we bring it before God. We bring it under His authority and we serve Him with it and He is glorified by it. That's what the church does. And to mute music or talent or gifting or art is to deny God His due glory. The church submits to Christ without losing her dignity. Look at 1 Peter 5.5. 5. This is... This is, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So for you guys, for us men, what does that word mean there? I mean, in what way do you submit to the elders of the church, to the leaders of the church? Does it mean that you just check your brain at the door when you come into the church or when you're talking to an older man? Like when an elderly, elderly man uh, says, just do it. No questions asked. Just do. Cannot ask questions. Is that what he's saying? What it means is that 
you, you humbly honor the structure that God has put in place in the church. But it is not failing to be who you are in, in the process. You submit to the elders without compromising your dignity. Now, biblical submission can mean challenging someone at times. The point is, you challenge them without disrespecting them or dishonoring them. For to challenge arrogantly is pride. And, and Peter says here that God opposes the pride, the proud. So, this, is, this comes out of a commentary. This is uh, the commentary in the book of Ephesians by, by Ken Hughes. And he says this about submission. He says, The fact that a wife wants to honor her husband's leadership does not mean she will sit in mute silence. Questioning his reasoning is acquainting him with his error. It's not evidence of a rebellious spirit, but rather of love. Refusing to support his moral folly is not sin. A Christian wife can stand with Christ against her husband with a humble, loving spirit which indicates her longing to honor his headship. That's beautifully said. So in a marriage relationship, it is not submission to let your husband go unchallenged. Let's say into his addictions. If your husband is addicted to porn and you find that out, it doesn't mean that, oh, I'm supposed to submit to my husband, say nothing. That is not submission. You should confront your husband for his sin. If your husband uh, is into gambling, is into alcohol, submission is not to remain silent. It is not submission to do that, to let your husband make unethical business deals and stand around and do nothing to challenge him. It is not submission to let your husband decide on a particular move for you as a couple or, or, or your family that will lead to a future that will not bring shalom and flourishing into the marriage and into the family. John Stott, um, in his book, God's New Society, said this, If a husband abuses his authority or abandons his spiritual obligations, then the duty of a wife committed to her husband's good is no longer conscientiously to submit, but conscientiously to refuse to do so. So submission is the arrangement of one's gift for the good of another. And that may actually mean that you may need to challenge your husband but you challenge him without disrespecting him or dishonoring him. But with the gifts that God has given to you, the mind that God has given to you, the intuition that God has given to you, because people, there's something that, is, that, that a man doesn't have that a woman has. It's called intuition. It's the ability to pick things up. It's very, very strange. I mean, if you live with a woman long enough, you know that she will tell you, I can sense it. Sense what? <laughs> I, I don't sense anything. You know, but I can sense this, you know. And then she will tell you what she senses. And you better believe her. I've learned over time, better believe because it comes through. It is it. You try to use the logic and reason and say, it cannot be, it cannot be. But then later on you find out you are a fool. It comes. I mean, she, she was right in, in how she sensed and discerned intuitively. And then you ask her, where do you get this? I just feel it. You feel it? You know? Is there a logical way to get it? I cannot explain to you, I just feel it. Well, God has given them the intuition. You know, and, and, and that is a gifting that God has given to you. And you bring that out, it will be a blessing. And there will be times that you will need to challenge your husband, but do it without disrespecting him, without dishonoring him. Because the moment you do it with dishonor and disrespect, you are, you are proud. And God opposes the proud. 
So in so doing, she does not compromise her dignity in her duty to submit to her husband. So what is submission again? So let me put it in another way. If I could put it another way, I would say this. Submission is pouring oneself into the sanctification and the completion of another. The wife, when she is able to bring into the relationship her intellect, her skills, her intuition, her talents, her gifts, her spiritual discernment, when she's able to do that, she sanctifies and she completes her husband. She, that is, she makes him more holy in that place. You know, and, and so doing, she does, she, she, her own sense of dignity and value is not compromised. So the biblical model of submission actually seeks to dignify Christian women by saying, you take all that is yours that God has given to you and don't suppress it, but express them to sanctify your husband, to complete him, to bring shalom, to bring spiritual flourishing into your family to the glory of God. So each wife must determine how she can best bring the glory of God into her marriage. The Bible does not specify, you know, if you read the Bible, the Bible is not prescriptive. The Bible does not say who should drive the car. It doesn't say, men, you drive the car. It doesn't say that. So it doesn't matter who drives the car. That's not the point. And it doesn't matter, you know, who pays the monthly bills. It doesn't matter whether the wife should stay at home as a stay-at-home mom or hold a job outside. I mean, it doesn't matter who should make coffee in the morning and who should do the cooking and who should do the washing. The Bible doesn't tell us who should take out the garbage, who should carry groceries from the car, you know, or you know, who should do the marketing or wash the dishes and make the bed. And I know that you have heard so many you know, marriage sermons on all of these things, but the Bible does not have a word about these things. You know, nothing. I mean, whichever in your dynamics work, do it. There is a remarkable absence of prescription to, for the daily operations of marriage. But there is one thing the Bible does say about a husband-wife relationship. And that is this. Husbands, use your authority to glorify your wife. To make her glorious and radiant. And wives... Arrange all of the gifts that God has given to you. Don't suppress them. Arrange all of them you know, to sanctify Him, to complete Him, to make your home beautiful, and to make your community a blessing. And that, that will bring you great fulfillment and do it dutifully without compromising your dignity. That's all the Bible says. The rest of it, however you want to do it as a couple, go ahead. There are some husbands who are better cooks than their wives. Let your man cook. You know, there are some wives who are very good, you know, in accounting and finances and budgeting, better than their husbands. You go ahead and control the finances. You know, because if you leave it to him, it will be a mess. Alright? And the Bible doesn't say a word. You know, about whether this is right or not. But when it comes to authority and submission, there's a clear word. And we go by that, that family is going to flourish. The last thing, people, in this is, that, is this, the wife's desires. Every wife desires to love her husband. Every wife desires to be loved by her husband. But how does a wife deepen in her love for her husband? How does it deepen? People, when the wife invests her life, in supporting and affirming her spouse. In that way, her love for him will deepen. A wife who supports her husband through a crisis at work, 
by teaching the children in the house to honor their father, who, who yields to his decision during a family impasse because she trusts his walk with God, that wife is growing deeply in her love for her husband. Now, the world will say that, you know what? You're going to love your husband more if he buys you another diamond ring. You know? Or, you know, if he gives you this and gives you that. Now, people, even if your husband were to do all of that, it will not deepen your love for him. Like the way when you find that you are able to bring your gifts that God has given to you and you pour it into his life, that is what is going to deepen your love for your man. The scriptures uses one word for all of that, people. It's a very important word. And the word is respect. You see, every woman who respects her husband really loves him deeply. And the way that I know that my wife loves me, I mean, there are many ways I could say, you know, my wife loves me by cooking for me, that what I like to eat, you know, by this and that and everything else. But the, really, the, in the depth of it, I know that she loves me by the way she respects me. That's how you know it. And every woman who respects her husband submits to him willingly. Now, the word comes out of Scripture. In Ephesians 5.33, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, it doesn't say, let the wife see that she loves her husband. Instead of the word love, the word for the wife is respect. That she respects her husband. When you look at these verses, it looks like God is dealing with, with each gender at their point of weakness. Now, husbands, love your wife as yourself, he says, because the, the default fallen nature of a man is actually to love himself. Men are very selfish. Somebody say amen to that? <laughs> very softly, amen. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Ah, out of respect, the women would not say a thing. <laughs> but they feel it. You know, and it's like, yeah. And, and they, they love themselves. They love themselves a lot. And, and, and so, they, that's the reason why there's a tendency to use the authority and the strength, you know, that they have, you know, to, for themselves rather than to serve their wives. So, Paul was very good in saying that, say, husbands, love your wives, because that's your weakness. And you know what's the weakness of the wife? To give respect. To give respect to their husbands. You know, uh, 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 women, the default fallen nature of women is wanting to have control of their husbands. You know, and, and in so doing, disrespecting them. Now, this usually shows up in a conflict between husband and wife. Usually, in a conflict, a man will try to control a woman by his strength and authority. He's bigger, he's louder, he's stronger, so he may shout at her. Uh, he may bang at the, the table, break a chair, or even hit her. And you know how a wife tries to control the man? Very simple. I'm not teaching you to do this, okay? <laughs> but you know intuitively what to do, women. You know, you, you, know. you know, he does this by demeaning her. She becomes sarcastic. She taunts his ego. She gets cynical. And these are the control mechanisms for a woman. It always works when the man is disrespected because he feels weakened. You know, his ego is bruised. 
And women are very clever. You know, sometimes they don't use words, they use looks. <laughs> it just takes a demeaning look. Or a cutting remark. Sometimes you wonder, where, wow, the words are so... Like, like, as a man, you try to use the same words, it doesn't come out the same way. <laughs> but for them, it's just natural. They just cut you down. You know, and it's like, where do you learn this kind of thing? You know, how come I cannot do the same thing? It's just not in us. So, you know, we, we see, and, 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 and all the em embarrassing reminders of, of, of the mistakes of the past. You know, they bring it all back and the man feels totally diminished and he becomes less sure of himself and, and therefore become more controllable. And if you're an insecure man, then you will react to that sense of being diminished by becoming more dominating. It's counterproductive. This, this in turn gives a wife more opportunity to needle some more, to shame some more, which subsequently triggers even more abuse. Then the marriage becomes a daily tug of war just for power. So, a wife's method of control is to diminish the man's ego, and the husband's method of control is to dominate her. And this is generally true. Both responses are very damaging. Both are very unbiblical because husbands are not supposed to dominate. They're supposed to use their authority for the wife's good, and the wives are not to disrespect their husbands. And without giving your husband the respect, he cannot be what he needs to be, ladies. He just can't. And where there's no respect, you cannot love your husband or be loved by him. That's why Paul carefully chose the right word for wives. Respect. It's humbling for a man to say to his wife that for the way that God has wired him, that he actually needs her respect desperately. He needs it. He cannot be what God intends him to be if he doesn't have the wife's respect. It's okay if the world doesn't respect him. He needs the wife's respect. People, there have been many times in my ministry where I knew that I didn't have the support of too many people. Now, that particularly reached a climax in the year 2001 because I will never forget it because my church went through a major crisis. I ran into huge problems with my associate pastor whom I was grooming you know, to be the next in line after me. And uh, what he did was that he left over one Sunday morning, the church was 100 people less. And that was sizable, you know, for a church that was like about, at that time, maybe four, 400 plus. A hundred people, just, he took a hundred people with him and started a new church. And I didn't even know that that was going to happen. It all happened behind my back. Now, you take a hundred people and start a new church, it's quite a way of church planting. Not the, <laughs> not the recommended way, not the biblical way, but it is quite a way of church planting, you know. So suddenly... You know, my, my church was torn. I mean, I, I knew that, uh, like, with many people, like, they were confused. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know what, what were the, you know, the problems behind the scene between my associate pastor and I. And I felt like that Sunday morning when I stood at the pulpit to preach, I knew that, you know, like, all of a sudden, the car park got a lot of space this Sunday morning. 
suddenly you could sit anywhere you want because you know a hundred people are gone and and they were confused that people begin to doubt my leadership and I was losing their respect for me but through this whole thing I knew that my wife was unwavering in her belief in me and that gave me immense strength that she did not lose any respect for me she never once ever used that situation that I was in to demean me or to doubt my calling into ministry. I mean, she told me that I should listen more to people now than ever before. And that was wisdom. She told me what my weaknesses were that could have led to this situation, but she did it with great respect for me still. And that, that was such a strength for me. I felt like it really didn't matter if the world didn't think anything of me as long as I had the respect of my wife and the trust of my wife. And she was able to help my children who were then teenagers to look at their father with honor and respect. And that further strengthened me. She used all of her gifts, her steadfastness, her steadiness. She poured it all into me so that I could stand up on my feet again to be the man that I needed to be. And if there's one person I really needed at that time, it was her. You know, when I was like, I, when I was building the church and running the church, there were many times I could do a lot of things without my wife. I mean, she doesn't help me with the preaching. She doesn't help me with my, the, the study of scripture. She doesn't help me with my leadership and with my vision casting and all of that. She's just doing her thing. But at that moment, when everything was falling apart, there was one person I needed in my life, and that was my wife, and she was there for me. And, 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 and I, I, I felt I so needed her. I mean, I, I knew that at that time that, you know, if I didn't have her respect for me, I got virtually nothing. Or the reverse could be true as well, that if I didn't get her respect, and I was yearning at that time for the sense of that, I, that like, I felt like I lost it all that I didn't get her respect, that I would be so vulnerable that I'd be looking for that respect elsewhere. And that would be dangerous for my own moral life. In fact, I remember telling my wife that, you know, that because I was so drained, and you know, when a man is very drained emotionally, you know, you were, there are a few ways that you will respond. You know, you were, there are certain things will come up. One of the things that happened to me was that I was invaded by all kinds of sexual fantasies and thoughts. They were evil, they were wrong, and I would, I would tell her, I say, honey, you know, I just, you know, I have these things coming to me. And every night she would hold me tight and hug me to sleep night after night after night. And in that way, I just felt sanctified. Sanctified over and over again. Ladies, I want, I want you to see this. That did you realize that your husband, that the man that God has created, his beloved, that God is, he could be a strong man, he could be a great man, he could be a public figure, he could be, you know, but God has so wired him up such that it is you, only you, who can give him strength by respecting him and honoring him and pouring your life with all of your gifts and your, your strengths into his life. How beautiful is that? And how valuable that makes you to be. And how dignifying that is to your womanhood. You know, many, many wives don't realize that their husbands need their respect. 
Because the husband don't seem to appear to need anything. You know, they, this, is, this is the guys, you know, they pretend to be very strong, you know, like, they don't need anything. But wives, this is the husband's greatest need. Your respect for him, it empowers him. It actually makes him a better husband. It releases his potentials. You may think that your husband gets all the affirmation that he needs from his job, his ministry, you know, that, or his achievements, his success. But what he actually needs is you affirming him. I mean, you just give, tell him, you just affirm him once. You just tell him, you know what? I'm just so proud of you. He flies. You know, I tell you, you know, I, 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 I think I'm a, quite a good preacher. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, and people will come up to me and say that, you know, Pastor, you preach so well. I mean, such a good sermon. That every time I get into the car, I'm dying to hear what my wife says. You know, it's more important what she says than what anybody else says. And then when, when, when she tells me, that was a real good sermon. Wow, you know, I can speed the car through the highway. I want to fly, you know, because I just want to be her hero. You know, and it's like, it doesn't matter what other people say. I mean, okay, yeah, thank you, you know. It's great, you know, that at least you, you, know, you, you, you feel this way about me. But what does my wife say about me? You know, and that's, that's, that's that important. You see, so once you make it your goal, wives, you know, to affirm your husband and to show him respect, your marriage really will take on a new turn. Now, what if you are married to a man who is a problem? What if he really doesn't deserve the respect? Because, yeah, the reality is that there's some men that are just like, like you just don't know. How, you know, what is... No, okay, I'll stop there. Yeah. For what is worth, verse 33 is very helpful to that question, alright? Because, you know, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the, the, the word respect here in verse 33 also appears in another place in, this, in the same passage. In verse 21, this word respect, appears as another word, reverence. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is actually the same Greek word. Alright? It is translated as reverence in verse 21, but it is translated as respect in verse 33. So you can read verse 33. Let the husband see that she reverence her husband. Woo, that's even worse. You know, it's like, now it's not just respect, you've got to revere your husband. Now, every wife knows that no husband deserves to be revered. Now that's, that's a little too much. Respect, that's fine. But revere your husband. We understand how and why we should honor our Savior. Him is the one who deserves our reverence. But why would Paul say a wife should reverence her husband when no man actually, in that sense, no man is worthy of such regard? Now I tell you why. It is because the Bible regards headship as a holy office in the home. It's an office. It's almost like if you are in the military, you have a commander. And whether you like him or not, whether you think he deserves it or not, you have to salute him. I mean, that is, that is just, that is the office. And you may not honour the man, but you have to honour the office. And therefore, no one should slight what the Bible says we should revere. 
The wife has holy reverential obligations when it comes to her attitudes and actions towards her husband. Also, the apostle uses the word reverence to underscore that a husband, the spiritual head of the house, must eventually give account to God for the spiritual nurture of his family. It's, an, it's a holy office. On the great day of judgment, every husband will stand before God and he will have to account to God how he has led his wife and his family. Therefore, because the wife knows that a husband will have to answer to God, she would have to revere the seriousness of her husband's office. The holiness and gravity of, of his obligations to lead his wife and the family into glory are so awesome that they require honor, even though it carries them out, or even though he will carry them out imperfectly. So any wife who despises her husband's headship despises the God-given office that's given to him. And at the end of the day, it was God who would judge him. So now, the wife is called to respect him. Now let me close with this story. Anne, Anne Judson married Ado, Adoniram in 1812. You know Adoniram Judson? from. No. She was 23 years old at that time. And two weeks later, after they were married, they embarked on their mission trip. First they came to India, here. And then the following year, they moved to Burma which is now Myanmar. Now in those days, when tensions arose between England and the local authorities in Burma, the missionaries were thrown into prison. And Adon Adoniram was thrown in a cell so crowded with so many prisoners that some of the prisoners had to sleep standing. They were deprived of sanitation, of water. One time he was hung from the thumbs. And that was the kind of torture he suffered. And Adoniram survived, when he was going through all this, he survived on the words of his wife, Anne. Anne would visit him in prison. And when she walks into the prison, she would have to experience the, the abusive jeers of the, of the guards. Most of the wives would not dare to go in to see their husbands in prison because of these jeers of the guards. But she would go in. And with her eyes, she would pour love through the prison bars and refresh her husband. And she, in the book, it's, it's, this is a book, and in the book, he says just this. She always told him this one thing. He says, do not give up, Adoniram. God will give us the victory. Do not give up. So when hope died in others in the prison, these often repeated words kept the man alive. Then suddenly, the visit stopped. For days into months, and just didn't appear. And then Adonirim didn't know why she stopped coming. And at one time it was the anticipation of her coming that kept him alive. But now the concern for her, for her life, you know, drove him to survive each day. And then when there was a change in government, finally he was released. And he went on a desperate search, uh, search for his wife. And he soon learned that she was dying. When he approached her government-assigned tent, Adonirim met a woman so filthy that he did not in the first place recognize that this was her, his wife. She was so shrunken by disease and malnutrition. She had lost all of her hair and she just laid there immobile. But when she saw her husband, as weak as she was, one more time she told him this, Do not give up, Adoniram. God will give us the victory. And Adoniram Judson took his dying wife's word of encouragement as a charge from God, and millions in Burma came to the Lord as a result of that. 
and hundreds of churches were planted, and it spread all the way even to northeast India, you know, where that, that revival happened. Anne Judson died at the age of 36, but she died pouring her life, her gifts, her graces, her strength to serve the good of her husband. She fulfilled her duty as a wife, and she did it with great dignity, because nothing is more valuable to a woman than to see God use her man in the strength that God has given to him. And she did it with deep love for her husband that came from reverential respect of his calling and reverential respect of his leadership in his life. And people, that is the calling that, and I, I, I pray that that will be true of every wife and every wife-to-be in this room that you will pour out all your gifts, all your strength, and all your graces to be, to be a blessing to your men, so that in so doing that you will be fulfilled, in so doing that you will be released into your own dignity and potential. Let's pray again, and then I'll ask uh, Anand to come and close us. Our dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word again. We thank you, Father God, that when you call the woman to submit, Lord, you've not weakness. You call her to dignity, not shame. You call her, Lord, to life and not death. And Father, I pray, O oh God, for every wife and every wife to be here. I pray, God, that you would use your word, oh Father God, to shape their hearts and their lives. Father, I pray for every marriage here. I pray that you are strengthening. I pray, Father God, for Everyone here, Lord, who is single and who is yet to find a man or a husband, or a husband or a wife, Lord, I ask, O oh God, that the words that they heard today will shape their thinking, will shape their lives, and will prepare them, O oh Lord, for the person that you will bring into their lives. May you be glorified, O oh God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.